it's been said that pride is the only disease known to man that makes everyone sick except the person who has it. And we've all seen that. In other people, of course. <laughs> there was a guy named Uncle Zeke who lived in a little town in Texas, and he could never admit he was wrong because of his pride problem. And one day he was walking along the street and happened to come into a blacksmith shop and saw dust all over the floor. What he didn't know was just before he got there, the blacksmith had been working on an uncooperative horseshoe and had beat it until it was black and it was still hot and it wouldn't cooperate, so he just tossed it off into the sawdust. Well, Zeke walked in, looked down, saw the horseshoe, picked it up, not knowing it was still hot. Naturally, he dropped it very fast. The old blacksmith looked up over his glasses and said, kind of hot, ain't it, Zeke? To which he responded, nope, just doesn't take me long to look at a horseshoe. <laughs> Anyways, well, we're going to talk about the, the fact that there's no place for pride anywhere in gospel message of salvation. It's not up to us doing anything to impress God. After presenting the case that all people, whether they're very pagan or very religious, are guilty before holy God and without excuse, Paul continues his argument uh, that being declared righteous before God is not based on human good works or effort. It is by faith and therefore there is no place for any people to boast. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, Paul continues now to make the case regarding justification is by faith alone. And it only makes sense that he would look to the example of Abraham in directly presenting his case to his Jewish audience in Rome. They looked to Abraham as the example of a righteous man and had wrongly concluded that it was his own righteousness that made him so special. That certainly is the same mindset of a lot of people identified with Christianity, with false religions, with pagan systems. They all have one thing in common, and that is that you are responsible to please the deity that you worship and do what is expected so that your future destiny will then be attained through your own power. With this being the case for Jew and Gentile alike, Paul deals specifically now with the Jewish people in Rome, presenting the example of Abraham and how he was justified by faith. Of course, the Jewish person in Paul's day would have agreed that Father Abraham was right with God because look at his amazing life, all the things he did, sacrificed his own son, and all those things. And he was called a friend of God, and he was chosen. He was the one chosen to be the father to a countless number of descendants. He was seen as the supreme example of a righteous man, but the way Abraham was made righteous was not by his own efforts to earn God's favor and impress him. His salvation was the result of faith alone. <clears throat> so this destroys, then, the case for every person who thinks that they can please God sufficiently enough by keeping the laws and the rules of a particular religion or denomination. For the Jewish people, Abraham would certainly be the most powerful illustration to show that justification is by faith. So we look at verses 1 and 2, the example of Abraham. What shall we say then that Abraham our father, according to the flesh, has found? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. Obviously, the Jewish people would agree Abraham is right in God's sight. So Paul says, all right, well, let's take a closer look then at his life. After having presented Jew and Gentile are justified by faith, as we saw last week in chapter 3, 
Paul uses the human father of the Jewish people, Abraham, to teach exactly how he was justified. This would apply then to all his descendants as well as everyone who would seek to be right with the true creator God. Those who were according to the flesh that he mentions here are the descendants of Abraham, the Jewish people. Now Paul states that if Abraham had been justified by works, he'd have something to boast about in and of himself. But the point is, Abraham did not have anything to boast about before God. Abraham was justified by faith. Verse 3, for what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. This is a quote from Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, which would have been this verse that his opponents would have used to prove that it's human merit that got him justified. There is no mention of the works or the merits of Abraham here at all. But rather, this is a verse that clearly states it is God who gave righteousness to Abraham as a free gift. It was Abraham's faith that brought uh, that brought that God declared him as his basis for becoming righteous. The Lord reckoned or considered or counted this ungodly pagan man from a pagan background to be just, declared righteous. This was the bait. This was based on his faith in God's word that he would indeed have a land he'd never seen, have more descendants than the stars, and that through him all the nations of the earth would one day be blessed. He understood that. And what's so amazing is that, that Jesus tells us that in John 8:56, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. He didn't know all the specifics, but he believed there was one coming that would be the savior of the world, that would be a descendant from him, and his faith was in that promise from God. If you've ever studied the life of Abraham, you know there were times where he really failed in his obedience. But his being accepted by God was never based on his righteous behavior or the lack of it. Rather, it was God who declared Abraham righteous. He trusted in God's kindness and grace and believed his word. It's not that he mustered up enough faith and therefore he could be saved. Faith is really simply the conviction of a person's heart that believes God has provided the gift of salvation. Galatians 3, 6 and 9, uh, Paul makes the case. The scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. All the nations will be blessed. <coughs> that was the message that he looked forward to and believed. In other words, all of those who are of faith like Abraham are blessed along with Abraham, who was a man of faith. As Ephesians 2, 8, 9 make it clear, being in right standing with God is a gift from him. In reality, this faith, this faith is also a gift because you can't even muster that, revealing that salvation is all the work of God from the start to the finish. God alone gets the glory, therefore there is no place for human boasting to be valid. People are, just, are justified not because of, just because their sins are forgiven, but because the righteousness of Christ has been given to them. God credits the sin of every believer, puts that on Christ. And then he credits Christ's righteousness and gives it to the believer. 
Abraham's sins, just like yours and mine, had to be paid for by a sacrifice of the Messiah's blood. Not only do sinners need a payment for their sin debt, they need a righteousness that they just can't do or muster up on their own. This is why the gift of salvation is so amazing. We should be awestruck that God would make a way for sinners like us to actually be declared righteous with the holy, perfect God of the universe. You may recall in Genesis 11 and 12, God revealed himself to Abram, told him, leave your family, leave Ur of the Chaldees, and he only partially obeyed. He took along his dad, and took along his nephew, and then stopped for a time in Haran. Once his father Terah died in Haran, he was ready to continue in obeying the Lord on his journey. But again, he compromised the truth. Remember, oh, there's a famine, better go to Egypt. Oh, better lie, because they're going to want my wife, and she's my sister. And then also in that whole situation, you leave there with Hagar, picked up to be the handmaid slave of Sarah, who ultimately went along with Sarah's plan to help God out in this whole promise of an heir. Scripture is clear that Abram had been an ungodly man. He had times of disobedience. He lied. He took matters into his own hands. Abraham could not boast before God that he was a righteous man. Paul makes the point in verse 4 that people who work for something to get paid for it, this isn't a gift. It's what you're supposed to get for working. If a person was good enough to get to heaven by their works, then God would owe that person eternal life. It would be like a debt to a man. But God owes no man anything. If people could get to heaven because of their good works, then there really was no need for Jesus to come and die for the sins of the ungodly. So in verse 5, salvation cannot be by works because that makes God a debtor. It also gives man a boast. Rather, salvation has to be by faith. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. Like Abraham, the person who is justified has nothing to commend himself to God about. A sinner knows they are a failure in God's sight. There's nothing to boast about. Like Abraham, a person must see themselves as ungodly, spiritually poor, lost, separated from a holy God, and see themselves as a sinner in need of forgiveness. When Abraham believed God and his promises, God imputed righteousness to his account and declared him righteous. And this is the same way God saves people today. So then we see the blessing of being justified in verses 6 through 8. Paul gives another great example in Jewish history, their favorite greatest king, King David. And he quotes from Psalm 32, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sin has been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. The examples here of Abraham and David give the complete picture of what justification means. Righteousness is credited to Abraham's account, and the sin of David is no longer on his account. So we get the full picture. So David is proclaiming that it is God's grace that provided forgiveness. Just as Abraham was justified by faith, so was David justified by faith. It has always been this way, and it is the same today. The first eight verses have clearly taught that a person cannot get to heaven by their righteous works. Abraham is proof of this along with David. 
So we see the religious rituals and works could never save anyone. He comes to another point to look at. Paul anticipates really here his Jewish audience saying, yes, 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 I hear what you're saying, but you have to be circumcised. That's a, that's a given. That's what makes us acceptable to God. Paul now asks some questions to make his audience think. Is the, this blessing then on the circumcised or on the uncircumcised also? For we say, faith was credited to Abraham as righteousness. Paul reminds his Jewish audience about the date and the time of Abraham's circumcision. Go back in your history. How then was it credited in verse 10? Well, while he was circumcised? Not while he was circumcised, but while he was uncircumcised. The truth of the matter is that Abraham was justified before God before he was ever circumcised. In fact, it had been many years since he was declared righteous. He was 99 when he was circumcised. Ishmael, at that point, his son uh, through Hagar, was 13. When God made that covenant with Abraham in Genesis 15, Ishmael wasn't even born. It was after his salvation that he was credited with righteousness that Abraham was circumcised. So, in reality, Abraham was a Gentile when God declared him righteous. Circumcision never made him justified. It was a sign and a seal for God's covenant people. When Abraham obeyed God's command to be circumcised, that was the evidence of the fact that he had a changed heart that was circumcised. We saw this in chapter 2, that this religious ritual was something that simply pointed to the symbol of sin being cut away in the very place where it was passed on. We read in verse 11 that it was also a seal. A sign is for others, and a seal was for Abraham that God had declared him righteous 14 years earlier. When we participate in the Lord's Supper, have been baptized, as we saw that earlier, all these things are good things. They are signs that point to what's taken place inside the heart of a believer. However, they simply point to our salvation. They are not the way to have salvation. If you are married, you have a wedding ring that you wear. It's a symbol of your marriage. It doesn't make you married because you put on a ring. It's just a symbol. Verse 11, so that he might be the father of all who believe without being circumcised, that righteousness might be credited to them. So Abraham had been declared righteous by God 14 years before he was ever circumcised, so that he might be the leader of all the Gentiles who had never been circumcised and all who were saved through faith. For the Jewish person alike and the Gentile alike, salvation is only by faith. We read in verse 12 that Abraham is the leader of all Jewish people who had been circumcised and then trusted the Lord for salvation, who were not trusting their circumcision. So this great man of faith is the pattern for everyone who will ever experience salvation. We are to follow his footsteps and come to God by faith in the promise that he keeps his word. So, keeping religious rituals could also not save anyone. We've seen this. Salvation cannot be attained by keeping the law. Verses 13 through 15. Paul now speaks of the promises given to Abraham, known as the Abrahamic Covenant. God had promised him, his descendants, uh, the land of Canaan, more than he could ever count in descendants, and that, again, all the families of the earth would be blessed 
through who would come from his seed. The seed of Abraham is Jesus Christ, and all who trust in him receive every spiritual blessing and the blessing of salvation. A part of that will include the day when all of his own will inherit the earth where Jesus himself will reign. And when God made this promise, he did not lay down any conditions as to what Abraham would have to do or not do in order to have this promise. It was not conditional on him keeping the law. We read it was not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. The reality is that the law of Moses wasn't even given to Israel until 430 years after God (laughs) declared Abraham to be a righteous man. Paul is proving that salvation cannot be based on keeping the law, Because Abraham was given this promise of salvation before the law was ever given. With that being the fact, how could anyone think they are saved by keeping the law when Abraham was saved apart from the law? Verse 14, for if those who are of the law are heirs, then faith is made void and the promise is nullified. Paul's point back then is just as relevant today. Salvation is not the result of trust in Christ plus doing good works. Paul says that if keeping the law had been any part of salvation, then it was then faith is useless. Law and faith are opposites. Law depends on self for salvation. Faith depends on Christ. In other words, there is no value in a promise that no one is capable of attaining. If you keep the law, then you'll go to heaven. No one can keep the law. If God's promise to Abraham depended on him keeping the law, then it will never be fulfilled because he, nor anyone, could ever keep the law. Only Jesus did that. If the promises of salvation are based on people keeping rules, it could never be fulfilled because no one can keep them. The Jewish people long for the Messiah to come and set up his kingdom on earth and make their inheritance a reality. But they thought this was going to come because of keeping the law. But the opposite is true. Look at verse 15. For the law brings about wrath. But where there is no law, there is also no violation. We saw earlier that the wrath of God is his holy hatred of sin. The law brings about punishment because its purpose was to show people how sinful we really are. We saw that in chapter 1, that even before the law of Moses, there was sin. But then when the law came, now that sin makes it a violation that we're aware of, and it must be punished. The law defines sin, really. It makes our guilt very clear. And it carries the penalty for breaking the law. If there was no speed limit on a highway, and you'd go 110 miles an hour, people would do that. A lot of people would die. Okay, so now they set up a speed limit of 70. So you could have gone 100 miles an hour before, and that wasn't breaking the law, but now there's a sign. It's 70. So now you go 100. You're breaking the law. You can be arrested prosecuted as a lawbreaker, and so it is with the law of God. Abraham was declared righteous without any conditions attached. He shows us that faith and works do not exist together. Works are the evidence of a changed life. They are not what makes you changed. The promises of God uh, would be worthless if it was dependent on people keeping the law because no one can keep. Salvation is by faith. Verse 16, for this reason it is by faith in order that it may be in accordance with grace so that the promise will be guaranteed to all the descendants, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. 
The reason salvation must be by faith is so that it is in accordance with grace. Grace is God's kindness, his undeserved favor, shown to a guilty sinner who deserves punishment. God's the one who plans salvation so that it is he who will be glorified, not people. Salvation has to be by his grace alone, or else people will have praise for achievements by making themselves ready to go by their works. Salvation is not a reward for accomplishments that you've done. It is based only, rather, on God's undeserved favor to a guilty sinner. There is no other way salvation can be guaranteed other than by faith. If works are the part of it, is how you get salvation, then there could never be any certainty because you never know if you did enough or if you did the one thing you shouldn't have and you failed to do the thing you should have done. If salvation were ever earned or kept based on our behavior, we've all lost it. Certainly Abraham could have looked back on his life with doubts and wondering if his scheming, if his lying, if his failure to have pure obedience had any impact on his righteousness with the Lord, but it did not. He had been declared righteous and was in a right standing with God because God did that. But his faith was in the faithful God who trusted, who he trusted in. It was not in him keeping whatever standard he thought he should keep. And that brings us to look then at the at the true nature of the faith of Abraham. What characterized his faith? He believed God and trusted him to do what he promised. As it is written, verse 17 says, A father of many nations have I made you in the presence of him whom he believed, even God who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. The initial promise from God that he was given to Abraham was that he would be the father of many, but at that moment he was Abram and he was the father of none. Complete humiliation in his culture. The pressure to fix this problem and how people dealt with infertility was to use another woman's body. And that was Sarah's plan to fix the problem of not having an heir. Here's a human attempt to help God out. They're not the first people to do that, are they? <laughs> For sure. But God had told him, no, in Genesis 17, Abraham, he changed his name to Abraham at 99, and Sarah at 89, he changed their names to father of a multitude, which is really embarrassing too, and then Sarah to princess. At this point in time, it was humanly impossible now for him to father a child or for her to have a baby. This meant they would, they would have to trust God to fulfill his promise and give life to their dead organs in order to have an heir. God put Abraham in an impossible human situation in order for Abraham to trust him to fulfill his word. He believed God would accomplish this. He said he hoped when the situation was hopeless. How often God does the same thing with us. We find ourselves in hopeless circumstances, situations where there's no solution and no way out. And do we believe his promises? Do we believe that he'll never leave us or forsake us, that his ways are higher and his ways are, are perfect? Do we believe that nothing separates us from his love? I mean, all the promises. We weren't given the promise of an heir like Abraham, but we have countless promises in his word. Do you believe them? That really is the question. 
<clears throat> Abraham believed when it was hopeless. As Abraham contemplated his own body, now as good as dead, he understood the facts that he and Sarah were too old to have a baby. But that did not shut down his faith. He understood reality. He knew that. Yet, it didn't weaken his faith. He looked beyond the impossible to the God who gave the promise, who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. Oh, to be like Abraham, who did not keep his eyes on his circumstances, but rather he looked to the Lord as the one to give him victory over life's circumstances. It's so easy to let our mind and our feelings focus on our trials rather than focus on the Lord. Abraham looked at his human impossibility situation, but when he looked at Almighty God, he knew it was not impossible. You know, he was a man just like you and I. And there were times we've seen he struggled with his faith just like you and I. Yet in verse 20 we read, With respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in his faith, giving glory to God. Abraham did rest in God's promise, and God was glorified by his faith. I'm reminded of Jerry Bridges' book, Trusting God, where he writes, If we're going to learn to trust God in adversity, we must believe that just as certainly as God will allow nothing to subvert his glory, so he will allow nothing to spoil the good he is working out in us and for us goes on to say, it often seems more difficult to trust God than to obey him. The moral will of God is given to us in the Bible is rational and reasonable. The circumstances in which we must trust God often appear irrational and inexplicable. Trusting God is worked out in the arena that has no boundaries. We do not know the extent, the duration, or the frequency of the painful, adverse circumstances in which we must frequently trust God. In order to trust God, we must always view our adverse circumstances through the eyes of faith, not sense. And this is what Abraham did, and his faith glorified God. Verse 21, Abraham had full assurance in God's ability to fulfill his promise. Faith trusts God to keep his word. He trusted God to make him the father of many. He was declared righteous. He believed God's word. So how do we apply this kind of faith? It says right here in verse 23, Now, not for his sake only was it written that it was credited to him, but for our sake also to whom it will be credited as those who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered over because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. Just as Abraham believed in God who gives life to the dead, so we too have to believe that God raised Jesus from the dead. Abraham was convinced of God's ability to bring life out of death. And so we must also be convinced that God raised Jesus Christ from the dead. Why? Because the resurrection of Jesus is the way we know God has proclaimed that he is totally satisfied with his death. It was a satisfactory payment for our sins. Like Abraham, we have to see we're dead spiritually. We're unable to redeem ourselves. We can't muster up any the goodness that's good enough. We have no spiritual life in and of ourselves. We simply must rely on God's word and eternal life that is offered as a gift through Jesus. When we, pour, when we put our trust in Jesus, it's like Abraham trusting in the promised child to come. It is by faith that we realize our sin separates us from God, 
and it is our sin that makes us worthy of his judgment. And it is that same faith placed in Jesus as the one who died for our sins that is saving faith. We see the truth about our spiritual condition, and we must look away from our sins and our human effort to the promise of God for salvation. This is the reason Abraham was called the friend of God. The only way God can be a friend to sinners is by sinners trusting his word. Jesus is the greater son that Abraham looked for. He believed the promise of God, and God declared him righteous. What about you? Are you trusting Jesus plus something, anything, church, denomination, membership, your baptism, your whatever? The only way to be right with the holy God is to be given his righteousness. We have none of our own to bring to him. We must all come to God the way Abraham did, by faith in what God has declared in his word. Have you trusted him alone? And what he's accomplished on the cross for you personally? It's not some mystical, ethereal experience. You can do that right now. Call on him to save you from your sin and trust him as your personal sin bearer. And he gives you the righteousness of Christ and he forgives you. And he will deal with your soul for all of eternity, uh, making you acceptable to God. You know, sometimes it seems we can trust him for our eternal destiny but not about life today. I can't handle what's going on in my life. Yeah, I can trust that forever I'm in heaven, but I can't make them, you know, trust them for today. And this is where our faith has to be lived out, really. We believe him for the most important things. Let's believe him for the day-to-day things. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Lord, I thank you for this wonderful example of Abraham in your word. And he was long before the law, and he was long before the New Testament, yet he rejoiced to see your day. He believed your word. Lord, I pray for any woman here who has not called on you to save her from her sins penalty, that you would work in her heart and open her spiritual eyes to understand there is nothing that we have to bring but humility and sorrow over our sin and call on you for mercy and forgiveness. I thank you for loving us in spite of our ugliness and our sin and our selfishness. Thank you for your patience with us. Thank you for saving us from our debt of sin and that we have the opportunity now to live our life as a thank you by doing the things you want us to do for your glory. In Jesus' name.